you remain standing for just a minute? We invite the Good Shepherd to take our hand and lead us on. I thought about this the other day. I was watching a child waiting to cross the street, and the traffic was going, and did the little thing where they reach all the way up to grab Dad's hand and then leads them through what they would not be able to navigate on their own at their age or at their stage of development. And as we pray this morning and ask God to lead us into his word and into the recesses of our heart, will you raise a hand up to your Father, to your Shepherd, to lead you into this? Father, we reach for your hand, relinquishing all that we grasp, all that we try to control ourselves. We need your wisdom to lead us into the ways of navigating life. And this morning and in this time, we ask that you would lead us into your word, cause it to intersect with the places where we long for you the most, where we need you. Father, lead. Spirit, speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. How many people were out on the green and watched this movie this recently on campus? Okay. And how many of you have seen the original version of this movie? Okay. Now, there's a premise inside this movie that I want to talk about this morning, right? The genie in a lamp who comes out and grants wishes. I've played this game with my kids going on car trips. If you could have three wishes, what would they be? If you could ask for anything in the world, what would it be? And I want you to kind of just go there and play that game for a minute with me in your mind. And when you compare that, of course, to what we see when we watch movies like this or when wishes get granted, what we typically end up seeing develop inside those narratives is that people ask for things that actually become the obstacles to their own success and fulfillment. Their own desires, when actually granted, get in their own way. How many stories have been told of people who have won the lottery end up having their lives unravel, experience an inability to discern genuine relationships anymore, and come to a point of wishing it might not have ever even happened. Or the 60% I've heard on watching ESPN 30 for 30 movies of NFL and NBA stars who make obscene amounts of money only to have it lead to bankruptcy or divorce or some sort of heart-wrenching life experience. So many of the things that we think we long for the most are often the things that will actually hurt us the most should we ever be granted them. I want you to think for a minute about what it is you're going to school for. The ambitions that you have. And is it possible that some of the things that you are trying to create in your life might actually not be of the kingdom, but if actually given to you, might actually become the thing that could very much undermine your faith. They might hurt you the most. This semester, this year, we're going through this book in chapel, the questions. Some of you are in small groups reflecting on them afterward as well, these questions of Jesus. And the one we come across today is sort of a, a genie in the lamp kind of moment. James and John's experience with Jesus where he, they approach him and tell him, we want you to do for us whatever it is that we ask. And the question Jesus has for them and for us today is, well, what do you want me to do for you? 
Which is so interesting, because I want you to think about this before we even go into the text, that what Jesus probably, we would have expected him to have done, would be like, well, that's a ridiculous request. And think of all the things that you and I probably come before Jesus with that are born out of our own selfishness, born out of our own hopes to find a path of least resistance in life. And instead, Jesus doesn't just say, well, that's a ridiculous question but listens to our deepest longings and desires, even if they are misguided and selfish. Begins a conversation with us and leads us to a place of truth. So is this really a blank check moment when Jesus responds with the question, what do you want me to do for you? Is it a trick question? Is it just simply the kindness of God as they articulate their own broken wants? In his presence and with him, only for him to change them. The text. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to them. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As the text starts, it says they are on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Two weeks ago, we were in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus leads the way into a storm. Jesus is taking his disciples into difficult places, asking difficult things of them. And when they cry out in response, he doesn't take them to a lake where there are no storms. Instead, he demonstrates his presence with them and what are his purposes even in hard things. And so Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the rabble on the way to his own suffering and death. Jesus is leading once again into a storm. And the disciples, of course, are reluctant to follow. There's no prosperity gospel allowed when you look at these texts of Jesus as he demonstrates again and again that he needs to be able to take us, his followers, into hard places. 
What fascinates me with the way the text opens, though, is that the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Notice the difference of experience between a disciple and a follower. Followers are at a distance. They're not close enough yet to know how good he is. There's this experience of the inner 12, right, as the Gospels go on, and they, and they grow in their understanding of Jesus. And as they become closer to him, as their footsteps begin to follow closer behind the rabbi who was leading them, fear transforms itself into astonishment. When we keep Jesus at a distance, we experience more fear. What he invites us into, when he invites us into his presence, is awe and wonder and astonishment. And one of the great joys of discipleship is a movement from fear into astonishment. In many ways, you and I can use this as a gauge of where we are at in our discipleship in general, but also in specific areas of our discipleship. Are we in a place of fear or astonishment? What is it new that you need to experience from Jesus right now that you need to get one step closer in so that fear in that place of your life is transformed rather into awe and worship and astonishment? See, the disciples are still terrified. We're about to find out that everything inside of them is still railing against this, but their astonishment leaves them in the place where they have no other option. They still want to follow. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and they have been in places where they have had this, and they've been with him in these moments, and it is, their terror has turned into astonishment. What Jesus needed them to experience on, that, on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of that storm is beginning to refine and change them. And six chapters later, we get to a place where they still might be confused. But my friends, our experience will always precede our theology of God. Our place where we experience the hard things he leads us into will always come before our ability to explain them well in words. God will always keep us in a place of wonder. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed were afraid. I keep challenging all semester long to think about what it means to be one step closer. What does one step closer to the rabbi mean? What does one step closer mean when we move on a journey from fear to astonishment? And discipleship for Jesus isn't like this, he's not a con artist, he's not a salesman, there's no snake oil deal going on here. Discipleship is an eyes wide open invitation. This is the third time now where Jesus is explaining to them very clearly what's about to happen. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. You remember when this has happened in the past, already in chapter 8? He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The first of his closest three friends pulls him aside, basically to tell him, you're out of your mind. He, he rebukes him in a word that's the same word used for when Jesus casts out demons. Peter's that frustrated. He thinks he needs to fix Jesus in this moment because everything inside of him rails against what Jesus is telling him discipleship is going to be. And each time one of these warnings come from Jesus, you can see the human response from the disciples and the same from within us, within us being like, no, 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 I don't want to go there. Happens again in chapter 9. He said, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. 
but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And then you know what happens right next in chapter 9? Then they come to him and be like, Jesus, we saw people casting out demons in your name, so we told them to stop. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you can't, do, no, 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 that's, no, don't do that. If they're doing that, they're already on our side. But you see what the disciples want to do, right? They want to get their heads and their hands all the way around. They want to be able to explain, and they want to have, they want to have God in a box. They want to have one that they can understand and one at times that they could even control. You and I long for the same things. Let's be realistic. If I'm not thinking with the Christian part of my brain and someone asks me, what are your three wishes in life? They're going to be pretty selfish. They're going to be somehow give me wealth, somehow give me ease, somehow give me protection from hard things. And the disciples are no different. You guys, the church has done this too in every moment of history. We want to be able to control God. We want to be able to explain it all. But faith cannot be limited by your own understanding. That's why worship is such an important component of discipleship, because it always takes us back to awe and wonder. Thinking God's thoughts after him and the pursuit of theology, these are beautiful things. But they are always going to be limited. In a recent interview with Christianity Today, talking about the cultural moment where we're at, one of my favorite writers today, Mark Sayers, talks about it like this. He talks about this development throughout history, and the move of God becomes a movement. However, over time, abiding is replaced by striving. We try and keep the movement going, turning it into a machine which runs on human power rather than divine favor. Eventually, the machine becomes ineffective, Existing as a rusting monument to a past move. Isn't everything dry and dusty you ever experienced in an ecclesiastical attempt to hit the pause button on history summarized in that? God always wants to keep moving. God has something new to teach you that, tomorrow that you do not know about him today. This morning I was sitting down in the worship arts room. I do this every Wednesday morning and I have a time of prayer, and I'm going over my, my notes. I'm preparing for the message, and I, I, I was staring just at the cross that's on the wall. And, and, I, and I prayed, and I pray this regularly. And sometimes you get big answers, and sometimes you don't, right? And it's God's prerogative in the way that he teaches us, because his desires for me are better than mine. But it was one of those moments where I'm just staring at the cross, and I asked Jesus, will you show me something new about you today? Because I got some own hard stuff going on in my life right now. And... There's times where you feel like God doesn't see it or it becomes kind of all-consuming, and that's when my selfishness usually takes over the most. And I'm just asking God to show me something new about him and his heart. And, and I could picture, you know, again, him, him on the cross. And, and then what I saw, which I've never seen before, was I had an image of his hands turning. And then behind him and what he was holding back was this giant cloud of, of war and famine and pestilence and hurt and pain and cancer and disease and death. And it was just this, it was hell itself all held back. And the, the arms that allowed the, the nails to go through them to hold my sin and there is also holding back so much worse that my life could actually be. And I become so obsessed with this hard thing that I'm in and it's all consuming, not realizing that even in that moment, God is withholding so much of the hurt 
and pain of the world from me because he loves me and he's good and he is for me. And I have this vision and this song playing in the room in the back at the moment was he is for us and not against us. You are for us and not against us. And I felt that in that moment, and, and I'm, I'm loving these sweet moments where God shows us something new, and we have to long for more of that, and the disciples needed to experience that regularly with Jesus because he's never done with them, and he's not done with you yet either. And so we come to this part in chapter 10 where the third warning comes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise, and then... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him. Do you see how jarring this is? This would be like me standing in front of you right now being like, everybody move, the building's on fire! And nobody moves. Like Jesus is telling them something absolutely astronomical and they're just like completely unfazed. They're not even listening. Like how many times do I come before God in prayer where I am so determined with what it is that he's got to get done in this moment that I'm missing out what it is that he really wants to tell me. Are we open to him in that regard? Are we open to a new move of God in our lives? A new thing that he wants to teach us? Look how closed off James and John are. With the, they've already decided what would make this moment better. They've got it figured out. They weren't even listening to Jesus when he was telling them everything that was about to happen. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And again, Jesus doesn't shame them. And when you come with your ridiculous, selfish requests before God, there's something where the invitation still stands. It's like, just, just name it, my kid. I am so in love with you, I want to hear even your brokenness. I'm so enamored with transforming you, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to your rant. I'll, I'll take everything it is that, that's there and I'll show you how we can take that desire and correct it into one that is of the kingdom. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. The passage starts with Jesus leading them, and once again, the disciples are back into a place where they're trying to take over control. Kind of like you and I waking up every day of our lives. And he graciously tells them, you don't even know what you're asking how rarely we actually do, right? You don't even know what you're asking. But a loving and gracious God keeps working with us and shaping us. And he refines us in our prayers. The reason why our conversational language with God is so important is it's in that time and in that space and sometimes even in the verbal processing of our own longings where he wants to shape and refine our language and lead us into a better place. This is a great indicator that comes in this text, though, and I think this shows us sometimes where our own prayers are off. If you are asking for something in prayer that means you get something that somebody else doesn't, my guess is, is that prayer is not about the kingdom of God and it's in breaking anymore. I was really convicted of this this week going through. If I'm praying for something that's more about me, then somebody else isn't going to benefit from that if it props me up in any way, it is of the world, it is of selfishness, and it is not of God. If I'm praying for something that's going to benefit me because somebody else doesn't get something, I am not loving my neighbor as myself. I am not asking for the kingdom of God to break in. And chances are God's going to want to break me 
of that selfishness. So Jesus tells them, not so with you. See, you've got to be different than the rest of the world. Everybody else is going to do the, the dog-eat-dog thing, but that's, that's not your game. That's not how the kingdom of God is going to come in, and that has to start inside every one of us in our own prayer language with God. Later on in that article, Mark Sayers says, the raw material of renewal is humility. I love that. The raw material of renewal is humility. You want your life renewed? You want change? You want your desires answered in the ways that you don't even have the vocabulary to articulate? Humility is the fuel that will drive that process. The ability to come before God and not say, I got a plan for you, but the ability to come before God and say, what is it that you want of me? To let God have control back in those situations. This is how he concludes it. He says, all corporate renewals begin with personal renewals. Personal renewals occur when men and women of God come to the end of themselves. Their discontent begins to solidify into a desire to live in a new way. Everybody who says, I want to see revival. Well, this is how revival happens. This is how renewal happens. It starts inside every one of us. Every one of us wants to point out the problems going on in the world. And Jesus tells stories about, well, how about we start with the log in your own eye? You want to see something beautiful happen in the world? Open up your humility a little bit wider. You want to have your desires answered in the ways that you don't even know how to ask the questions for? Humility will allow God to enter in and reshape you to be able to ask better questions. Humility is the raw material it takes to do this. And the more people at one point in time who all gather up and say, God, we want that work. I want you on your terms and not on mine. I want you to break me if that's what it takes. I want you at any and every cost to myself. I want you more than anything else. And I don't know how to move from the step of fear as a follower to astonishment as a disciple. But I know you're going to meet me in that space if I step out. I'm going to ask the band to come on up and lead us in a closing song. And as they come on up, will you join me in prayer? Father, we acknowledge that there are hard steps to take between our fear and the place of astonishment. And we acknowledge and we admit and we repent that there are so many places in us that are just like Peter and James and John. And we have grand ideas for you and are much more hesitant to receive yours for us. God, we ask that you would help us in our prayer language, in our mind, and maybe most importantly, deep down in our hearts. In those places of our soul that have the deepest longings, and we fear we will not be accepted or loved or known or successful. That rather in a posture of humility, we would open ourselves up. We don't have to stand on our own, but we can instead rest in your arms understand that bravery will, be co will come not when we stand on our own two feet and not when we make you our servant boy but when we get the order right and so Father now we boldly pray with arms and lives and hearts and minds wide open increase our humility 
and do a renewal work inside each one of us. Show us the next sin that you want to free us from. Show us the next doubt that you want to turn into faith. Show us the next step of faith in following our rabbi from Nazareth. Teach us to walk in faith. To be brave for your name's sake, for you are for 